Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. So uh, if, you've, if you've lived in Houston for very long, uh, one of the kind of unique, quirky things about Houston, or maybe if you're just giving someone a tour of Houston who's never been here before, it really stands out. Uh, but Houston doesn't have very many zoning laws. I think there are a couple, but there's not really any zoning laws. Uh, the Houston Chronicle says that Houston often feels like a giant monopoly board was dropped on the floor and someone hastily placed the hotels and houses together on random properties. That's kind of what Houston feels like, right? There are manufacturing facilities next to homes. There are three-story townhouses next to literally anything you could think of. It's three-story townhouses uh, next to you know, giant office buildings, uh, three-story townhouses next to bars, next to churches, uh, next to a park, next to a bayou, uh, literally a three-story townhome next to everything. Check, check, check. And the lack of zoning uh, means that sometimes there's something really beautiful, like a historic home or a neighborhood park or a monument, and it is kind of bumping, butting right up against uh, something less than beautiful, something maybe ugly even. And that's just kind of the norm in Houston, that it's like a smoke shop next to uh, a historical home. And that's just like what it is. That's what we got here in Houston. And uh, today we're in the third week of walking through the book of Colossians. We're in Colossians chapter three today. And um, in this chapter, we have some of the most beautiful and meaningful phrases and verses that we get in the New Testament. Uh, They are beautiful. And they butt right up against some really ugly, difficult stuff. And so today, uh, we're going to do something a little bit different that we don't normally do. Uh, We're going to read the entire chapter, and we're going to take it little by little. So we're going to read a couple verses at a time, talk about it, a couple verses at a time, talk about it, a couple verses at a time, talk about it. Um, And we'll look at all this really beautiful, meaningful stuff. We'll talk about what it means. Uh, And then we'll look at this uh, ugly section. And talk about what we do with that and, and how uh, we deal with the Bible that has this kind of juxtaposition. These things that are meaningful and beautiful right up against these really difficult things. And so we're going to look at the whole chapter today. You, get, you read a whole chapter of the Bible today if you listen to the rest of this. Congratulations. Mark it off your list. Uh, so here we go. Colossians chapter 3 starting in verse 1. It says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This is the good stuff. This is the beautiful stuff. Set your heart on things above, right? Get it cross-stitched. Call Hobby Lobby for the big production run. Like, this is the sweet stuff, right? Put Set your heart on things above. And when the Bible talks about the heart, like love the Lord your God with all your heart or set your heart on things above. It's not really talking about our emotions or really even our love. Um, When the Bible talks about hearts for the biblical authors and the audiences, the heart was like the center of your being. It is your truest self. It is your full attention. It is your real intentions and desires. It is your true self. The center of who you are is the heart. And so Paul is saying here, he starts this passage by saying, Set your true self, set your center, who you are, direct all of it, your truest desires, your intentions and your attention, set it on things that matter, on things that aren't going to perish, that aren't temporary. Direct your life towards things that matter. It's beautiful and it's good. Then in verse five, 
Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and Christ is in all. This is another, I know, just this is another beautiful section here. And this is one of those sections where we often just highlight the wrong words, right? We see sexual immorality and our little lizard brains go ding, 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 ding. This passage is about sex and I don't like how the Bible dictates our sexual behavior and this bothers me and I don't like the way it talks about this. Um, But that's not really what this is about. Verse 11 tells us, the very end of this little section tells us what it's about. It says, Christ is all and Christ is all. Christ is in all and Christ is all. So this this passage isn't primarily about dictating behavior. It's about the inherent dignity and worth of all people. So Christ is all and Christ is in all. Everyone is worth something. Everyone has dignity and inherent worth. And through that lens of inherent value and dignity and worth, you see all the rest of these things like impurity and greed and rage and anger and malice and sexual immorality. That stuff is about harm. It's not about dictating behavior. It's about, um, it's, it's about lessening harm. Right? Paul is saying, stop harming the people around you. Don't you know that Christ is all and Christ is in all? Don't harm these people. Christ is all and Christ is in all. The sexual immorality isn't about personal purity. It's about community harm. Right? Your rage is harming people. Your malice is harming people. Your lying is harming people. Paul is saying, stop harming people. These people that you're harming, Christ is in them. Christ is them, is what Paul says. Very mystical. This is about the inherent dignity of all people. No one should be harmed. Paul says, stop harming people. They have inherent value and dignity and worth. Christ is all and Christ is in all. And that's good. That's good. In verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is sweet. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. I have read that so dozens of times at weddings. This is a wedding passage. This is good. So Christ is in all. Christ is all. Stop harming. And instead of harm, instead of anger and malice and rage, instead of all of that, start being compassionate and kind and gentle and patient and forgiving. Instead of tearing each other down with sexual immorality with rage, with lying, with slander, instead of tearing each other down, build each other up. And above anything else, if you're not sure what to do, Paul says, just be loving, right? If you're not sure what patience looks like in a given situation or gentleness looks like in a given situation, just ask yourself, what is the most loving posture I can take in this given situation? In this context that I'm in, what is the most loving posture I can take? Now, I like the idea of that question, that that in a moment of difficulty, that we might would stop and say, 
what is the most loving posture I could take? But um, taking the time to ask that question is a slow process. It is not fast. And the ability to slow down in those hard moments is difficult. Right? Victor Frankl says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom. Right? Between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space, we have an opportunity to ask, what is the most loving response in this situation? How, how can I be the most loving? Love binds all of it together. Right? If I'm not sure what patience looks like, what gentleness looks like, what compassion or kindness, what is the most loving way I can respond? And our, our ability to build each other up with love and patience and gentleness and kindness, it requires us to take time between stimulus and response, to just pause for just a moment and to ask what would be the most loving way. And in that pause lies our growth and our freedom. This is good stuff. And then verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here, this is one of those, um, if it repeats it more than once, that's probably what it's trying to say, right? Be thankful, sing with gratitude, give thanks to God. Be thankful, sing with gratitude, give thanks to God, right? We are acting in love, but our being, who we are, is grateful, right? We're acting in love, but our being is gratitude, right? This is the posture that we take as we practice all of that goodness from verses 12 through 14, all the compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness, as we practice those things, the core of us sits in gratitude, right? Whatever you do. And this isn't, um, th this isn't, it doesn't have to be toxic positivity, right? That in whatever you do, you are grateful. It doesn't have to be toxic positivity. It doesn't have to be blind optimism, right? But this is just living with the knowledge of the love you have and the love you are receiving, or you just live with that knowledge. Say, I'm loved. There is love coming my direction. Right? Love is on its way. And with that knowledge, it's not blind optimism. It's not toxic positivity. You can live with gratitude at the core of your being. And um, maybe gratitude is hard for you. Uh, and if maybe um, you're kind of a natural complainer, it's okay. I understand. Uh, but if you are that kind of person, maybe you need like a, like a little mantra. This is a practice I like to do. It's just to find uh, three or four words, a little phrase to string together uh, to help myself. So if you hear yourself mutter a complaint or you, you have in your mind just those unnecessarily negative thoughts, sometimes we get in those thought patterns that are just, just unnecessarily negative. Right? You could just remind yourself with just a little mantra, I have everything I need and I'm capable of gratitude. I have everything I need and I'm capable of gratitude. Right? It's not diminishing whatever difficulty is happening. We just say, you know, right now, I have everything I need and I'm capable of gratitude. 
Now, don't say this to someone. Don't tell somebody else, you have everything. You are capable of gratitude. This is just for you. This is your mantra, not anybody else's. But just take it with you. And you say, you know, when I, when I feel that complaint start to come out of my mouth, or when I feel the thought pattern of negativity rise up in my brain, you just say, hey, I have everything I need. And I am capable of gratitude. Right? And if, uh, if you'll try it this week, I'll try it this week. That's a promise I'll make. So we have all this beauty and goodness. It is. It's good. Set your mind on things above. Clothe yourself with compassion. All of that is good. It's beautiful. Right? You read it at weddings. It's cross-stitched. But then we get to verse 18. And um, the vibe changes. Okay? Verse 18 through 25. And this is what it says. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Okay, some of you stopped uh, listening after verse 18. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's okay, understandable. This is tough. So what do we do with this? Uh, what do we do with this? Path? It is difficult, and honestly, it's just ugly. And it butts up against some beautiful stuff. What do we do with it? So first, let me just be as clear as I can with as strong of language as I can. Uh, wives, women, you do not need to submit to men. You, do, you don't need to submit to men any more than a man needs to submit to you and your leadership. You, you do not need to submit to men. And the idea, the concept of wifely submission has been used as cover for abuse of all kinds. And it has and continues to be a harmful message. And you shouldn't let anyone manipulate you with it. You do not need to submit. Okay, submission is not, submission to your husband is not a Christian ideal. Okay. And similarly, verse 22 is just not okay. It's just not okay. Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Work for your masters as if you're working for the Lord. That's not okay. It's not. Uh, it's not okay. Uh, sla slaves do not need to submit to that This just doesn't make sense. And we don't have to pretend like that's okay. It's not okay. And again, this passage and others like it in the Bible gave cover as a defense for the slavery that existed in our country 300 years ago, not very long ago. And then it gave cover as a defense for the following racism, Jim Crow laws, and really the subjugation that we experience today. And um, slavery in any form, subjugation in any form, is not of Christ, and it should not be given any room to maneuver. No defense, no cover should be given to slavery of any kind, subjugation in any form. But how does this work? 
because um, verses 1 through 17, does that mean we shouldn't clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience? Do we not set our mind on things above? How do we keep some of this, but not the rest of it? So there are a couple of tools I want to give you today um, that you can use as you think through this. This is for you to think through, but I want to give you a couple of tools. Uh, The first is the reminder that the Bible is both primitive and progressive. That's the truth of the Bible. It's a primitive book. This talk about slavery and wives, this is primitive. It's primitive. And there are crazy, weird, violent, primitive things in the Bible. And we don't have to pretend that all of it is for us. We don't. It's primitive. Right? The stuff about wives and slaves submitting is primitive. And we don't have to pretend like that's okay. But the Bible is also progressive in a lot of ways. So we put the Bible in its rightful place to say some of this stuff is not for us. It is just, it's, it's just primitive, and that's okay. We don't have to pretend like any of that is normal or okay. But the Bible is also progressive in so many ways. So even in this passage, like um, the Bible is pushing, the story of the Bible is pushing humanity forward, progressing the story of humanity. And it doesn't seem like it to us because we have continued progressing. But in this passage, like uh, the idea that husbands shouldn't be harsh with their wives shouldn't discourage their kids. Those are progressive ideas for their time. Not for us, but for their time. They're pushing the narrative forward. And that happens all through the Bible that we don't see it as progressive. Of course we don't. But the Bible is progressive in so many ways. It's primitive and it's progressive. Pete N. says it like this. I've learned to accept this paradox. A holy book that more often than not doesn't act very much like you'd expect, but more like a book written 2,000 to 3,000 years ago would act. I expect the Bible to reflect fully the ancient setting in which it was written and therefore not act as a script that can simply be dropped into our lives without a lot of thought and wisdom. The Bible must be thought through, pondered, tried out, assessed, and if need be, argued with. All of which is an expression of faith, not evidence to the contrary. We have to engage with this text and sometimes argue with the text. It's okay to disagree. It's okay to be bothered. Try to remember that the Bible is a primitive book written two to 3,000 years ago. It shouldn't just be downloaded into our mind as a script for us to live off of. It's primitive and it's progressive. And then as we try to kind of filter our theological beliefs, uh, I like to use what's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. I know we're doing geometry today too. Uh, this idea, it's named after John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. And um, it, it, it represents a, a four-sided approach, quadrilateral, a four-sided approach um, to determining our beliefs and practices. So the four sides of the quadrilateral, it's a square. It's a square, uh, but it's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. So that's what we're going to call it. Uh, so the four sides are scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. So this isn't um, what some in the uh, Reformation called sola scriptura. It's not scripture alone. That's not how we determine our beliefs. It's not scripture alone. It's scripture, yes, but also with tradition, reason, and personal experience. That's how we determine our beliefs and practices. So we don't have to blindly accept these passages just because the Bible says so. 
We don't have to say, well, well, it's in there. So I have to do exactly what it says. That's not how we determine our beliefs and practices, right? It's, it's Bible, yes, scripture, but also alongside our own reason, our brain. We don't, we don't check our brains at the door as we read the Bible. Then, then we use the reason and the experience of those who have gone before us through the work of tradition. We say, what have the people for the last 2,000 years said about these books? Right? They had their own reason, their own personal experience. Let's use that too. It's tradition. It's scripture, tradition. It's reason, and, our, and it's our experience. Our personal experience matters as we determine our beliefs and our practices. Right? If your personal experience tells you that submission isn't a healthy model for marriage, you don't have to blindly adhere to scripture. Right? You use your experience. Your experience matters. You use your reason. You have a brain that God gave you that works really well. Use it. And then use the experience and reason of those that came before you. Right? Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. It's a beautiful and kind of holistic way to deal with these difficult topics. To say, you know what, this is in here, and Scripture is a part of it. I'm, I'm reading the Bible. But I'm going to bring with it these other things to help me understand. Right? It's a beautiful and holistic way to deal with these difficult topics. Right? This is the Bible. It's our sacred text. It's complicated. It has beauty and goodness butting right up against difficult and complicated. So for you, how, how do you think about the Bible? How do you think about the Bible? Do you, is it a script that just needs to be downloaded into your life for you to follow? That you say, just tell me what it is and I'll do what it says. How, how do you think about the Bible? And then when it comes to this uh, quadrilateral of ideas, scripture, reason, tradition, experience, which rises to the top as the primary way you form your beliefs? Scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. What's at the top and maybe what's at the bottom? You know, Christians through time have mostly said, uh, let's put scripture at the top of the way we form our beliefs and our practices. Now, we've said that and we've written it down, but a lot of times we don't act that out. You know, we use our personal experience and our reason a little bit more. But I wonder for you, if you just had to rank scripture, tradition, reason, experience, where do those fall? Maybe what's at the top and what's at the bottom? And then are you willing to argue and struggle and disagree with the Bible? Are you willing to practice the compassion and love and gentleness, but not the submission? Are you willing to hold that tension? Do you say, yeah, I like this. Some of this is good and helpful and true. And I know it is. When I read it, I say my life would be more meaningful, would have a bigger impact. I would experience more joy and contentment if I practice this way, if I clothe myself with compassion kindness, gentleness, and patience. I know it would, but also I'm not going to submit. And I know my life will continue to have meaning and joy and contentment if I don't submit. How, how, are you willing to hold that tension? Essentially what I'm asking, are you willing to not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Right, th this stuff, uh, it isn't simple, uh, but it can still be good. And it is worth engaging, it's worth arguing with, it's worth disagreeing with and struggling with the beauty and the difficulty. The great uh, Rachel Held Evans says, if you are looking for verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. 
If you are looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. If you are looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you are looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you are looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you will find it. If you are looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not what does it say, but what am I looking for? I suspect Jesus knew this when he asked, when he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. If you want to do violence in this world, you will always find the weapons. If you want to heal, you will always find the balm. So gather today. What are you looking for? In all of this, not just as you read the Bible, not just as you engage uh, with, a, with a teaching today. In your expression of faith, in your beliefs, in your practices, what are you looking for? What do you want? What do you really want? Rightness, security, acceptance, belonging, healing. Or maybe the question for you is, who do you want to be? Who do you want to become? Whole, grateful, loving, free? Who do you want to become? Gather, this is my prayer for us today. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.